Sometimes we treat the Holy Spirit like a babysitter. We often talk about or think about Christ's return and we pine for it, which I think is fitting and appropriate. But sometimes we can do that not realizing actually how good we have it now. And in effect, what we can do when we do that is we can treat the Holy Spirit just like he's supposed to keep us occupied until the real person, our real favorite person of the Trinity gets back. We can treat him functionally and effectively like he's something less than God's presence in us and with us. These last few weeks, I guess it's going on a couple months now, month and a half or so, we've been in the throes of a series of sermons on the spiritual gifts. And in this series, the first thing that we found that we established as a people is that the Holy Spirit is himself a profound gift. He's not just somebody that shows up and distributes some things that we really want. We realize that when the Holy Spirit came, that he was himself a profound gift. When Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended to the Father's right hand, he did not send us a babysitter. He sent us what in other places, who in other places referred to as the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God. God's presence in us and with us is a profound gift. But we've also considered these last few weeks that as a product of his showing up is that he gave gifts to every single one of his believers. His showing up was a fulfillment of what the prophet Joel prophesied, that sons and daughters, young men, old men, even male servants and female servants would have a manifestation of the Holy Spirit when he comes. It's a profound event in the story of redemption, and we are embedded within it right now, walking in this period, the same period that began a couple thousand years ago at Pentecost. I've been trying to think of a good illustration to help you visualize what this is like. The Holy Spirit has come, He Himself a gift, and has given us some gifts for the manifestation, for the blessing of one another. And here's my illustration. I said I've been trying to think of a good one. This is what I've got. I don't think it's good, but it's all I've got. I want you to imagine that someone special wants to move in with you. Someone really amazing. Like, I mean, I'm trying to think of just the most amazing. I don't feel like I'm centered this morning. I'm really attentive to that. It's bothering me. I'm I'm heavier focused on this side. You know, I'm trying to think about, for me, who's, you know, like, who would be really amazing to move in with me and my family, you know, I... You know, the most amazing man or the most interesting man in the world might be a cool uh, person to have move in. You know, he's going to have some interesting stories and experiences to share. But I think I would probably lean toward Chuck Norris. I'd like to have Chuck Norris move in. Now, because with him would come the ability to roundhouse kick every problem. I mean, that would be a pretty cool thing if Chuck Norris moved in. And let me just tell you, this is the day that, yes, I compared the Holy Spirit to Chuck Norris. I want to ask your forgiveness for that. God's forgiveness for that. It's just for the sake of helping you understand the gifts. But imagine that Chuck Norris moves into your home. Pretty amazing deal. Once you get past the creepiness of him moving into your house and think about, okay, this is Chuck Norris has moved into my home, that he's going to be able to handle, you know, if, if knowing Chuck Norris as he is, that he's going to be able to handle some profound and significant challenges that you face as a family. He'll be able to tend to them like a big dog, like a boss. Okay, that's, that's in and of itself pretty awesome. 
But I want you to imagine, too, that as Chuck Norris comes to move in with you, that he gives gifts to each one of your family members. You know, and just these are stereotypical gifts. So please forgive me if you're upset about them being stereotypical. To mom, he gives a George Foreman grill. Scott, I'm disagreeing with Scott from last week's message. I think the George Foreman grill would be a pretty cool gift. All right, so to mom and wife, he gives a George Foreman grill. And with it, he gives the instructions. Now, this George Foreman grill is for you to make some delightful meals for the rest of the family. So with it, mom creates some very low-fat, as we know George Foreman grills do, low-fat but healthy and delicious meals for the rest of the family. So the rest of the family is nourished and edified and built up. To dad, he gives a tool set and these, all these skill saws and all these things that he can go build some cool stuff with for the rest of the family. He builds things. He fix thing, fixes things. He ministers to the rest of the family in a way that leaves them really thankful and satisfied and content even. To maybe one of the children, he gives uh, a musical instrument. And with the musical instrument, the young man or young woman learns to play a musical instrument and learns to, um, to, to minister to the rest of the family with that musical instrument. When the family's sad, maybe that person, that young person plays a happy song. Maybe it's a banjo because you can't play a sad song on the banjo. <laughs> maybe when, the, when they're happy um, or when they, they're, they're um, stressed, that young person's able to play a tune that leaves them feeling tranquil and uh, calm. But the gift was given to mom for the rest of the family. The gift was given to dad for the benefit and blessing of the rest of the family. The gift was given to the son or daughter for the benefit and blessing of the rest of the family. That is the nature of spiritual gifts. However you have ever heard spiritual gifts taught, or if you've even heard them taught or considered, that is the context for spiritual gifts. That is a, the weak illustration, but one that may help you understand that something profound, someone profound first has been given to us. And that with that profound gift of the Holy Spirit came gifts for each of you for one another. For the building up and the blessing of one another. I'll come back to that illustration later on in the, fam- or later on in the morning, but here's... Here's what I want to, want to leave you, a little seed thought that we'll come back to later in the morning. The result, when the Holy Spirit moves into the people of God, he gives special gifts to each of us so that we can bless one another. The result is that other people, if you can imagine the Chuck Norris illustration, the neighbors that live around my house where Chuck Norris has moved in and they see him roundhouse, roundhouse kicking all my problems, the neighbors that see him coming with gifts that bless us and leave us content and overwhelmed and happy, the neighbors say, man, I wish I lived with Chuck Norris. The neighbors say, man, I wish I was part of that family so I could be in that context, that environment of blessing. That's sort of the imagery of the Holy Spirit's gifting, his presence and gifting in the church. It should leave us a city on a hill. A bright and shining city on a hill that people look at and say, that's where I want to live. That's who I want to be part of. We'll come back to that illustration later on in the morning. This morning we're going to be considering the spiritual gift of leadership. It comes from Romans chapter 12. If you would, I would like for you to turn there. 
And if you're one of those that makes notes of uh, where we're going in the morning, I'll give you a little um, heads up on where we're going to be, where I'm going to have you turn. I'm only going to have you turn to maybe four or five passages this morning. But the first of those is Romans 12. If you're jotting down some notes, just to give you a heads up, here's the second one, Mark 9. The third is Ephesians 5. The fourth is 1 Timothy. And the fifth is 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay. This morning we're going to be dealing with the spiritual gift of leadership. We're drawing that gift from a little list of gifts in Romans chapter 12. There's a little heading here in my Bible that says gifts of grace. I'm not sure that we can differentiate between gifts of grace and gifts of the Holy Spirit. They seem to be synonymous. Some may disagree with that. I think we're talking about the same thing here, spiritual gifts. So I'm going to read the passage, just or a larger chunk of the passage, just for the sake of context, beginning in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This passage, this uh, chapter 12 really falls after 11 chapters of Paul sharing with the Roman church what they have in Christ, what their desperate problem was, but what they have in Christ. It would be 11 chapters of what we would call indicatives. He is indicating to them who they are and how they've been blessed. And then in chapter 12 and the rest through the rest of the book, he moves toward what we would call imperatives. If God has done this in 11 chapters worth of blessing, then starting with chapter 12, this then is how we should move. The one who gives ought to give generously. The one who, what are these other other references here? The one who, who gives should give with generosity. The one who exhorts should be full on exhorting, should be all in. And the one we're considering today, the one who leads should lead with zeal. So today we're going to consider that in context that it's in response to what has been done for us. In response to a wealth of indicatives, then the one who leads should lead with zeal as an imperative. Today we're going to consider this gift in the church and we're going to consider it in these four questions we're going to answer over the next few minutes. What does it look like? Holy Spirit gifted leadership What form does it take is the second question we're going to deal with. Third, where does it play out? Where is it to be applied? And fourth, how does it build up the body? Now, I need to give a little bit of of an explanation about how we're going to spend these next few minutes. I'm going to be moving back and forth between what we would call spiritual gifting in a very strict sense and Holy Spirit-influenced leadership. Okay, let me see if I can explain that a little bit better. Scott and Brad and I uh, met last night. This is after Scott and I spent, I don't know how many total hours we spent since last Sunday talking through where gifts pick up or leave off and where Holy Spirit-influenced activities begin. 
We spent a few hours at Brad Cardwell's house last night talking through this as well, trying to make sense of what is the difference between Holy Spirit gifts and Holy Spirit-influenced action. I think there is a difference. There's some overlap there, but there seems to be a difference. See, as we're dealing with these series of spiritual gifts, what has been a fear for me, what's a fear for Scott, what has been a fear for Brad, is that someone might hear a message, for example, today on leadership, and go, oh, well, that's not my gifting, so I'm not even going to give it a shot. That's a fear. That's what we might call one ditch. Okay, someone might, might hear a sermon on serving and say, oh, well, I don't have the gift of service, so I'm just not going to serve. That's a ditch. Someone might say, well, I don't have the gift of teaching, so I'm not going to teach my children anything. That's a ditch. And that's a very fair and valid concern or danger that the three pastors of this church share in this series. We don't want you to fall in that ditch. And we also don't want you to fall in the other ditch that might not recognize that there is distinct and profound gifting. There are some things that God apparently, through the Holy Spirit, gave You, even the language of what we just read, the one who exhorts in exhortation. Apparently, in the church in Rome, Paul's saying some of you are uniquely gifted in exhortation. If you're the one who exhorts in this church family, then you do it. Okay, We we don't want to fall in the ditch of saying, well, it's not my gift, so I'm not going to do it at all. You also want to fall in the other ditch of not recognizing that some are profoundly gifted in certain things. The one who leads, lead with zeal. So the danger over here is, I'm not gifted in that way, so I'm not even going to try. And the other danger would be not recognizing that some are gifted with special gifting in these areas that we've been considering. And you're gifted in something specially. But it doesn't mean that that's all you do. So basically, I have a slide to sort of demonstrate where Scott and Brad and I landed on this matter. Go ahead and put that slide up. For the, those of you on the side, I'll read it for you. I fought this, this guy that looks like a preacher pastor is sitting with a cup of coffee and his computer. And at the top says, I thought my sermon would be good. It was just okay. I thought my other sermon wasn't good and everyone loved it. And then down below it says, I have no idea what I'm doing. And he's got a smile on his face that Scott and Brad and I can completely identify with that smile. As many hours as we've invested in this, as many days and weeks as we've been preparing for this series on spiritual gifts, it is not an easy series. In fact, we thought, here's what Scott and I thought over the course for a plan for the summer, is you know what? People pop in and out during the summer. They come and go. They've got activities. And It'd be nice to have a series of sermons that each stand alone where someone could pop in and out as they're going on vacation or they're traveling or whatever, where they don't miss a a sort of a building block approach to a sermon series. And we thought, too, it might even be a little break for us, you know, because spiritual gifts are a lob, right? Well, we found out the complete opposite, because when you start talking about topical teaching and topical preaching, you can make a mess of it really quick. And here's why that's easy, because this passage, it at least seems to point out that that leadership is a gift, a gift of grace or gift of the Holy Spirit, and there's not a whole lot else said about it. There's not a whole lot developed elsewhere about this is what the gift of of leadership looks like in the church. We have to work real hard to faithfully glean from some other passages what we can learn about Holy Spirit gifted leadership 
and Holy Spirit-influenced leadership that we all participate to some degree. All right? So keep this is the theme slide for the morning. We'll go back to it. Go back to it. Let's see it. I want you to have it in your head. I have no idea what I'm doing. It's basically what I'm trying to say to you. Okay. So let's deal with the first question. What does it look like? What does Holy Spirit-gifted leadership and Holy Spirit-influenced leadership look like? If we look at God as a source for that, where it's a fitting and appropriate place to look, the passage that Clint led us through this morning and then Clint read afterward in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. If we're going to consider God as the template, capital T template, or the source for leadership in his church and among God's people, then we have to consider that we have a God that leads us like a good shepherd. There's a lot to be learned from just acknowledging that he's a good shepherd because you have to admit that you're a sheep. There's a lot to walk away with there, just in the imagery alone. But considering that he leads us like a good shepherd, making us rest where we need to park in green pastures, and then leading us beside still waters and still places and somehow restoring us in the work, and then guiding us into good and righteous paths. That's the nature of God's leadership. Another passage from Psalm 68 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. We could add to the nature of God's leadership just from this passage and many others that God as a practice seems to be about the work of leading his people out of bondage. That's the nature of the gospel after all. We have a whole series of books in our Old Testament that's developed, or that, that develops a story of God leading his people out of slavery. That's the kind of leader that God is. He leads people out of bondage like he led Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land. It's not just leading them away from something. It's not just delivering his people from bondage, but taking them into a sweet and green place with still waters and blessed righteous paths. Holy Spirit leadership, gifted and influenced, leads like a shepherd that recognizes that we're sheep and leads to green pastures, still waters, and in righteous paths. Good, godly, godlike leadership, whether it's gifted in a strict sense or influenced in a larger sense, leads others out of messes. That's what God, godly leadership looks like, and into blessings. Godly leadership leads others out of messes and into blessing. Look at Mark chapter 9. I'm going to develop this question a little bit more. What does it look like? Mark chapter 9.
I don't have page numbers for you this morning. I apologize for that. I uh, didn't think about that until I was walking over here. I like to have page numbers for folks that uh, may not be sure where to turn. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. We're asking and answering the question, what does Holy Spirit gifted or Holy Spirit influenced leadership look like? Beginning in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, they being Christ and his disciples. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Like he didn't know. He knew exactly what they were talking about, and here's why he asked them this question. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I've shared the illustration before of a couple of kids that I heard arguing in a redwood grove, in the redwoods, about who's the tallest. That's exactly what's going on right here, where the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest while they're walking with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here's what Jesus did. He sat them down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone be, would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking, them, taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If we want to develop the, the, the image of what godly, Holy Spirit, gifted and influenced leadership looks like, we can certainly look to our Lord here and see how he leads in this context. First of all, he puts their pursuit of being first in perspective. He said, that's not what leadership is about. Leadership is about being last. Leadership is about being a servant of all. And he illustrates it for them so beautifully there. He didn't go postal on them, which I think I would have done. What were you talking about? Do you know who I am? He didn't go John Wayne parent on him and just tune him up right then and there. What does he do? Look at the posture. You can imagine him calling the disciples, y'all, come here. Come here, guys. I know what you talked about on the way over here. Come here. He sat down. Come here, guys. I love you and I care about you. And I want to show you what real leadership looks like. It's about service. Let me sit down with you as if I'm one of you. Let me show you what true godly leadership looks like. And oh, by the way, come here, little kid. Come here, little kid. What the world's leadership says, I've got no time for those small and unimportant things like kids. He says, come here, let's suffer the little children. How fitting that we consider that passage today when we have a room full of, it, full of men here with us. He says, come here, I've got time for you. Man, what a beautiful answer. What a beautiful response to some guys that had leadership all wrong. I want to be first among you guys. He says, if you want to be first, you got to be last. Godly leadership serves. The third thing that I think we can draw is a passage that we've already read from Romans chapter 12, verse 8. That godly leadership, gifted leaders lead with zeal. The word there, zeal, in the original language is the word spudo. It's where we get the word speed. 
Godly leaders lead with speed. It actually means that godly leaders lead with haste and with diligence. Maybe we could reread it this way. The one who leads should lead full throttle. The one who leads should lead all in. The one who leads should lead wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, enthusiastically, and passionately. The one who leads should lead like Hussein Bolt runs. Man, he's such a great example. I'm not talking of leadership. I'm talking of speed and and focusing on what he's been gifted in. You know that Hussein Bolt has never run a mile. He's not going to be messed around and tied up with other things that are not going to contribute to what he's gifted in. And he focuses on what he's gifted in, and he's full throttle. Would anyone disagree with that? How many gold medals does he have to prove it? Man, the one who leads in a godly way, in a gifted, Holy Spirit-gifted way, and we could even say in a Holy Spirit-influenced way, leads with diligence and with haste, all in, wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, enthusiastically, and passionately. Man, I've been thinking about what this looks like in the church and home. I think what this looks like is maybe in the home where a guy says, you know what? I recognize that I have a lot in common with that slide that Ben put up on Sunday. I have no idea what I'm doing. I realize full well that I feel like a clown when it comes to leading out like a faith, in faith in my home. But yet I'm going to try and lean forward and lead with zeal. So wife and kids, I ask you, please, with a great sense of humor, follow me as I lead our family in daily Bible readings. Maybe follow me, the clown that I am, the frail, feeble guy that I am, as I try and lead our family by green pastures, by still waters, and into righteous paths as God leads me. I think that's what leading with speed looks like. I think that that's what diligent, full-throttle, all-in leadership looks like in the home. I think what it looks like in the church is that folks who are leading in the church should not lead half-heartedly. You can tell the difference between a leader who's leading half-heartedly and one who's all in, can't you? I bet you've had them at work or you've had them in different contexts where you're like, man, you know the difference between the guy who is just punching the clock and doing a J-O-B and the guy that really enjoys what he's doing. My younger brother told me a story that he shares with some of his troops. He's a Uh, army officer and he shares the story with some of his troops the difference between two guys who are building a wall one of the guys is building a wall and you come up and ask him he's a brick wall he says well I'm I'm laying these bricks in this mortar and I'm building this wall right here and the next guy you ask the same question and he says well I'm building a school and I'm building tomorrow's future is what I'm doing because children are going to sit behind this wall and they're going to learn and they're going to grow and they're going to be the tomorrow of this community Big difference. Two two guys, one wall, one leads passionately, one is doing his job passionately, one is all in as he's doing it, and one is just punching the clock. Short-sighted, just fulfilling his J-O-B. Godly leadership, though, leads with zeal, with haste, leaning forward wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, enthusiastically, and passionately. 
What does it look like? That's not an exhaustive perspective on what godly leadership, godly leadership in the church looks like. But those are a few aspects. First of all, it's going to look like God's leadership. It's going to lead into good places out of bad places. And second of all, it's going to look like a servant. And third, it's going to lead with zeal. It's going to lead with diligence. Wholeheartedly. Frail and feebly, but wholeheartedly at the same time. The second question we were going to deal with this morning is what form does this leadership take? This is a place in these next few minutes where I'm going to be focusing uh, not especially but primarily on Holy Spirit-influenced leadership. This is the part of the message where if you feel like so far you've been sitting here and you say, all right, I don't have the, the Holy Spirit gifting in a strict sense of leadership. I'm not one that has, has sort of, the Lord has sort of uh, moved me into this place where I seem to be especially gifted in this way. This is the, for everyone else, especially, but it's also for that person. Where we're dealing with Holy Spirit-influenced leadership and what form it takes. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Just four different perspectives on the form this takes. The form of Holy Spirit-influenced and then... Um, gifted leadership. Ephesians chapter 5. This is not an exhaustive list that we're dealing with and answering this question, but it one, two, I think is thorough. I think it's going to be personal. I think it's going to connect to every person in, in this room, likely. I can't imagine how anybody won't have some connection to what we're going to consider in these next few minutes. So if you're wondering, well, how do I walk in this message? How can I respond to this message fittingly, appropriately? Hopefully these next few minutes will connect to wherever you might be, whatever your lot. First of all, what form does godly leadership, Holy Spirit-influenced leadership take? First of all, it takes the form of a husband. I'm being very specific there. It takes the form of a husband. Listen to this passage from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind that we're talking about a leadership role here for the husband? As Christ leads the church, the husband is to lead the wife. This may, some of you may be visiting for the first time or maybe the first of a few times and you've not heard that and you're wondering where where does this church stand on the matter of who's leading in in the home? We stand on this. We stand on what this says, that the husband's to lead in the home as Christ leads the church. Now look look how this, this develops. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now look at this next verse. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now I'm going to read another verse after that, but I want to point something out to you. He's been talking about, clearly he's been talking about a leadership role. Where the husband leads the wife as Christ leads the church. He could have used the word lead here and it would have been very fitting and appropriate. Let me read it that way so you can see what I'm saying. In verse 25, husbands, lead your wives. After all, that's what he's been talking about. Lead your wives as Christ led the church and gave himself up for her. But he didn't use the word lead. He used the word love. 
So we're going to talk about leadership first in respect to husbands, of husbands to wives. We have to talk about that leadership is going to look like love. The word he used instead is the word love. Husbands love. We could say and lead in regards to context. Your wives as Christ loved and led and leads the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Man, what form does leadership take? First of all, we have to deal with godly leadership takes the form of a husband toward his wife. As a wife submits to her husband and the church submits to Christ's leadership, The husband is to lead slash love his wife as he leads her. Love should condition and fuel and describe the leadership role for the husband over the wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Second form that it might take is in the form of parents. Let's look just a few verses later at chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Is there any doubt we're talking about a leadership role of parents there? It's an implied leadership role for parents if children are to obey their parents. I see some parents elbowing their kids sitting next to them. You hear this? This is for you. I just had my little dose. Here's your dose. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But look what it says next. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There is a distinct and profound leadership role of parents over children that for the children's sake, ought to at least, at the very least, be Holy Spirit-influenced. At the very best, there may actually be some Holy Spirit gifting going on there. But at the very least, whether you have the distinct and profound and special gifting of the Holy Spirit in regards to leadership or not, parents are to lead their children in a way that would reflect Holy Spirit influence. And I want you to point, I want to, I want to see what I want to point out to you I want to point out to you something I really want you to see here. It is father-heavy. The role of the parents is father-heavy. He acknowledges here both parents have a leadership role. It's implied, and the children are to obey, obey their parents, not just dad, but their parents together. And there's a promise that goes along with it, but here he aims at the fathers. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But fathers, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. If we're going to ask and answer the question, how does godly leadership, what form does it take? We've got to acknowledge it takes the form of a husband toward his wife and especially a father toward his child. But parents toward their children and especially the father. This is father heavy and laden with the Lord's discipline and instruction. The third form that this can take and will take and does take is in the form of what we would call real structured leadership within the church. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
This is the third of, I think, five places I've asked you to turn. 1 Timothy chapter 3. For asking the question, what form does Holy Spirit gifted and Holy Spirit influenced leadership take? We have to look toward elders and deacons. In my Bible, your Bible, likely it says elders and deacons. But if that's a term that you've not heard before, one that you've always kind of been confused about, elder is used synonymously and interchangeably with the word pastor. Okay? Elder and pastor is used interchangeably. If you've heard that we're an elder-led church, you've heard right. But it's the same thing as being a pastor-led church. When people say they're an elder-led church, what they're usually implying is that it's plural leadership, which is the case here. We have plural pastors, three pastors that are on equal footing. There's not just one guy that's in charge, and then everybody else kind of follows his lead. But in this case, there are three pastors, three elders of this church. But where I'm going with leadership in the church here and what this... The form that it also takes for us is in the form of overseers. That's another word that's used interchangeably with pastor and elder and in the form of deacons. Elders, pastors, overseers, and deacons. That's another form that Holy Spirit influenced and Holy Spirit gifted leadership takes. This, there's a whole section dedicated to here in, in this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3 to the qualifications for those people as they lead, as they lead in the church. You can read that on your own time if you'd like to. I would invite you to do that. But in Paul, when he's referring to this leadership in the church, here's what he says about these leaders in 1 Timothy. To the, or excuse me, in 1 Thessalonians. To the Thessalonians, he says, We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you. That's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12 for leading. Who are leading in the Lord and admonish you. In 1 Timothy 5, he uses the same word another way. A way that might be a little bit alarming for you. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Especially those who labor in in preaching and teaching. The word rule there is translated rule in the original language, is the same word that's used over there in Romans chapter 12 for leadership. The elders who lead well will be considered worthy of double honor. The form, if you're wondering the form of Holy Spirit influence and Holy Spirit gifted leadership it takes, it takes a husband toward his wife, a parent toward their child, and pastors and deacons toward their church, toward God's people. And then a fourth thing that I'll introduce to you is also here in 1 Timothy. Just turn over the page to chapter 12. And here's where I'm likely to get myself in a serious pickle. And I'm hoping I don't. 1 Timothy chapter 12. Excuse me, chapter 2, verse 12. Did I say chapter 12? You're like, hey, man, it's not in here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what's, before you get bogged down in the man-woman thing there, I want you to first pay attention to what's being said about teachers here. Teachers exercise authority as leaders. 
Look at what's being said in the first part of this passage. I do not per- permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. There's an authority that's exercised in the role of teacher. So teachers have a leadership role. If you want to ask what form it takes, it also takes the form of the teacher, male and female. There are male and female gifted leaders and male and female Holy Spirit influenced leaders. There are men and women in this church that are specially gifted in leadership. And there's a room full of people that hopefully are walking in leadership in some degree, especially the parents in here, as they lead their children influenced by the Holy Spirit, men and women. Okay, That's what we can glean from this passage is that it is an, it is an authority role because you're in a leadership role. Teachers exercise a leadership role in the church. Teachers exercise authority, men and women. Now, here's the place where I could really make a big mess of it. I could land the plane and get off unscathed. We'll just have to see. All right. If you've been paying attention at Crosspoint for any period of time, if this was your first visit, you may not be aware of this. You may have noticed already this morning that this is the case, but probably not. It's probably too early. But if you've been around for a little while, you may have noticed this. The leadership at Crosspoint Fellowship is male. Okay. Does anybody notice that? Is that pretty much everybody's aware of that? There may be some folks in here that have been like, hey, I don't get that. Why is that? Well, this passage and what Paul talks about here is why. Paul says Eve was deceived, not Adam. Now, we could certainly make the case that Adam fell to Eve's deception. But the reason that Paul said he's not going to have women leading in the church and exercising authority over men is because it was Eve that was deceived, not Adam. That's Paul's principle, and we're going to say that if it's Paul's principle, he also refers to it in another place in 2 Corinthians 11. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If you've been paying attention at Crosspoint, you see that the leadership in this church is male-leaning. I can't say that it is exclusively male, because we have a women's ministry that's led by women. We have a children's ministry that's led by women leaders. There's certainly a place for women leadership, but if you've wondered why it's especially male-leaning, this is why. It's not a men are better than women thought. Easily twisted, but that's not what it is. After all, it was Eve that declared first. She's the first one in our Bibles that apparently hoped for the Christ child. When Cain was born, she declared what our, what our Bibles say, the translation, the way, they, the way our translations read, is I've gotten myself a man-child with the help of God. But in the original language, that's not what it says. In the original language, what it looks like she's saying actually is, I've gotten myself the God-man. I've gotten myself the Christ. I've begotten the Christ who's going to restore us to that beautiful garden that we've been evicted from. She's the first one, after all, apparently, that hoped in Christ. So it's not a male men are better than women thing. Man, we love women. I love three of them especially. If you wonder who they are, it's my wife, my mom, and my daughter. (laughs) She'd qualify that. Man, this church loves women too, and we take care of our brides and our daughters and our mothers. 
This is not a men are better than women thing. This is a male-leaning, male-focused leadership environment because that's what the church should be. If you paid attention to everything I went through, their husbands lead their wives. Parents lead their children, especially fathers. Elders and deacons are men. And then teachers, most of them are men, not all of them, because women certainly have a teaching role with one another and with children. If, you want to, if you've always wondered how that sorts out here and why we do it that way, hopefully that will give you a little bit of clarity. What form does Holy Spirit-gifted leadership take and Holy Spirit-influenced leadership take? What form does Holy Spirit-gifting um, and leadership take in the church as husbands, parents, teachers, and elders and deacons? One, uh, here's one form that it doesn't take. is spectator. And I'll just leave that right there. One form it doesn't take is spectator. The next thing we were going to deal with was where does it play out? This is pretty straightforward. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I think this is the last place I'm having you turn this morning. Where does Holy Spirit, gifted and Holy Spirit influenced leadership play out? First of all, it plays out in the home. First of all, it plays out in the home. There was an ancient heresy years ago in the early church that was called Gnosticism that separated life into little compartments. It also separated the flesh from spiritual stuff. Gnosticism taken to its extreme, which was a natural place for it to go, actually developed the thought that you could do whatever you want to do with your body and it didn't matter because your soul belonged to the Lord. It separated body and soul to the point where it didn't matter what happened over here as long as this was good over here. But Gnosticism was also guilty of compartmentalizing life. And if you don't think about it, man, Western minds, we can be very compartmental about how we view church. At Crosspoint Fellowship, we try not to use the language of going to church. And that's because we don't want to think Gnostically. We don't want the church to be a place that we go. Because then if that's the case, then it becomes something that is contained to one day a week, or maybe two for really good Christians. And it's also contained geographically to the south side of town, 2401 Jack Finney Boulevard, which neither of those are true. So we use the language that we are the church. Where we gather, church happens. We don't want to think Gnostically. We are the church when we deploy into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods. And we are the church when we go home. And the church is made up of families who live in homes. And that's the place where leadership is to be exercised and especially um, exercised in the home. I encourage you to read these requirements for elders and deacons. And if you do that, here's some things you'll draw out of there. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, this uh, candidate for an overseer must manage. That word manage is lead. It's the same word from Romans chapter 12. It's the same word, too, that I shared just a moment ago, rule. It sounds like zeal is what it sounds like. He's to lead his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. That's a requirement for an overseer, that his home should not be a mess. And if his home becomes a mess, 
he's disqualified. Man, leading in the home is connected to leadership in the church inextricably. In fact, it's contingent upon it. It's dependent upon it. Leadership's got to take place in the home. In the next verse, for if someone does not know how to lead or manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Man, they're connected. Leadership in the home and leadership in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 speaks of deacons. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing, the same word, leading their children and their own households well. If some of you think, well, I don't have the gift of leadership, so I'm off the hook. These are calls for God's people to lead well at home. You might think, well, I'm not an elder or a deacon. Well, I hope you're elderable or deaconable someday. Man, think about that. You might be sitting here right now being equipped for a future day where somebody in some room says, man, I think it's about time that we appoint um, Johnny Smith to be a deacon. Everybody I looked around was already a deacon. I was looking for some names <laughs> and every, every person. Jerry Morris. I, I think it's about time that we appoint Jerry Morris to be a deacon. And the reason we'd be able to say that is because Jerry has led well at home. He's loved Mary Jane like Christ loves the church. And then as a follow-through, as an overflow, as a connection to that, really, we could say a connection. He's led well in the church. Those things are connected. Leadership at home and leadership in the church. Leadership in the church is proven, leadership, is proven by leadership in the home. Man, a guy can't be expected to lead church well if he can't lead home well. And a guy can't be expected, uh, a guy should not be asked to lead church well if he's not leading home well. Some of you may wonder why you haven't been asked to be a deacon or something like that yet. Or why you haven't been asked to lead in the church yet. It's because you're trying, it's time for you to gather up the reins at home. Because it's got to happen there first. Young men should be working and leading their families well so they'll be deaconable. <laughs> Think about that, young men. You should be leading your, your families well, loving your wives as Christ loved the church, inundating your children with the, the instruction of the Lord so that you'll be deaconable, so that you might be elderable someday. It is an unhealthy church that has little to no male leadership and has no future male leadership being forged in the home. And moms, you have a great role there too. Teaching young men to treat wives and daughters well. Leadership in the home is so important that an elder or deacon whose home is coming unraveled is disqualified from the office. Now we're asking the question, where does it play out? It plays out at home. But it also plays out at church. And those things overlap. Because the church is made up of families. But look at this passage I asked you to turn to in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift. There it is. In case you're wondering if you've, gift, if you've been gifted anything, according to Peter, each of you has. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. If you ask the question about spiritual gifting. What is spiritual gifting for? Why have you been gifted with something? It's for one another. Why have you been given the George Foreman grill, mom? To make delicious, fat-free meals for the rest of your family. 
Why have you been given this tool set, Dad? Not so you can build all kind of stuff for yourselves, or not so, not so you can keep it as a shiny uh, um, display over there, but that you can actually put it to use. You can use it to bless the members of your family as you use those things, as you build those, build with those things, and make those things, and fix those things so that the others will be blessed in the family. Look at what the passage says. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The reason we want to focus in at times, very, I mean especially on spiritual gifts and what, who they're for, is because if we think, okay, I have the spiritual gift of teaching, and I, that means I'm going to be a great teacher at Lamar Elementary. Is that a bad thought? No, not even close. Uh, you may be thinking, man, I'm a, I'm, the Holy Spirit has gifted me in teaching, so I'm going to be a great teacher at Lamar Elementary, and I'm going to teach in Jesus' name. I don't want to pour any, I don't want to pour a drop of cold water on that. But I want to put this in perspective for you. Man, please teach in Jesus' name at Lamar Elementary. Please be a boss in Jesus' name at wherever. Please be a, 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 an employee at L3 in Jesus' name. Absolutely. But spiritual gifting is for the church. You've been gifted something for all these other people in here. You've been gifted something for everybody else in here. That's what spiritual gifting is. It's for the one and others. So ideally, if you believe you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit with the gift of teaching, and you come to Crosspoint Fellowship gatherings, and you're like, man, I teach all week long at Lamar. I've got nothing left for the church. You're not walking in spiritual gifting. You may be just walking in some gifting. But you're not walking spiritual gifting, because spiritual gifting is for one another. The church doesn't get your leftovers if you only have enough. The church is to get your first and your best. That's where spiritual gifting is applied. It's for the one and others. Man, the spiritual gifts have been given to the church for the church. And what it does is it leaves the community going, man, I want to be part of that family. That's a whole new approach to evangelism. How many times have you been browbeaten in one sermon or one teaching after another saying, you need to go out and you need to share Jesus with all the lost people so that they'll get saved. When Meanwhile, part of you is thinking, man, I want them to get saved, but I don't want to become part of this church because we would really just, we'd just as soon stab one another as anything. We're just tolerating each other here at church. We're just existing together, but we all love Jesus, but we really can't go the distance with one another. That's a totally different approach to evangelism. It says, learn to express and minister to one another with the gifts that you've been given so that when you share Christ with someone out in the community, you have something to invite them into. You have a chance to say, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. This is what it's like to be part of God's people. This is where the rain falls. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, but especially on God's people. You have the chance as those spiritual gifts are identified and exercised to shower one another. That's evangelism. That becomes attractive in Greenville. Where people that don't have stuff or people that they may have a physical crisis or an emotional crisis or a marriage crisis... And they look to the church, and we have the chance to say, hey, let me help you in this, this crisis that you're in, but let me invite you into the real blessing to be gathered with God's people, to be on the receiving end of a room full of blessings directed at you, to be on the giving end of a blessing that's been given to you for one another. Man, that travels. 
that travels. Spiritual gifts were given to the church for the building up of the church. The last question that I asked, or that I said I would share, uh, deal with this morning, I'll just deal with the passage without having you turn there unless you'd like to. How does Holy Spirit gifted leadership and Holy Spirit influenced leadership actually edify the church? How does it build up the church? As a passage that comes to mind for me in, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. You can jot that down. If you'd like to turn there, you can, but I'll read it. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What's shared right in front of that passage, almost in the breath in front of it, is the encouragement that we should offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Now, I think leading well and following well in the local church is part and parcel to acknowledging His name. How does it edify us when we walk in Holy Spirit gifted leadership, when we follow it, when we exercise it, when we walk in Holy Spirit influenced leadership? How does, it, how does it edify us? I think what it does is it puts the relationship between God and his people on display. Not just outside of us, but inside of us. We're reminded of it. It puts the relationship between Christ and his church on display. Our children get to see it. We get to see it. We're edified and fed and nourished and built up as we see one another, following one another, submitting to one another, leading one another as God loves his people and as Christ loves the church. There's this corporate blessing that we experience together. And then the byproduct of that is the community gets to see, man, there's something profound happening there. There are people in distinct roles. There are leaders in distinct roles. And then there are followers in other roles. And they're following joyfully. And they're leading with a, a word that we could use instead of the word leading, like, like it's love. What a beautiful thing. I want to be part of that. I think the effect, the edifying effect there for the people of God is that we get to see what the relationship between God and his people look like, between Christ and his church. We get to live in it, and we get to display it to a community that needs to see it. The supper this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, the guys that are going to be passing out the elements, y'all can just kind of be ready. I want to share this passage, and I want to encourage you to do something as we distribute the elements this morning. I hope you've been doing this all along. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11 encourages the Corinthians, Paul, uh, God through Paul, encourages the Corinthians to examine themselves. And I want to encourage you, as you're here this morning, you've been part of this series, maybe this is your first time to, be, to step into this series, and you may be thinking, man, I want to hear more. Okay? At least this morning, I want to encourage you with this thought. I hope this series is leaving you in a place where you're examining, God, what have you given me? If you've given it to each, to one, to one's been given this, to one's been given this. If you've given me something that's for everyone else in the church, please help me see it first. 
Please help me identify it so I can walk in it. First of all. And second of all, please help me know what I need. See, that's a byproduct of this series that you may not have realized. Not only is it a series where you should be sitting thinking, okay, what, what have you given me? What gift have you given me, Lord, that is for one another, for the building up of the church? But the second part of it, what do I really need? God, what, do I, what should I call a need? And apparently from this series of messages, we could call so far needs that we have in our lives. I need someone to serve me who has the gift of service just as much as I need to serve. I need someone to teach me just as much as I need to teach. I need to be on the receiving end of exhortation. I need it. It's not optional for me. I need it. I sit under Scott's teaching and preaching just like I sit under Brad's teaching and preaching. I'm subject to it just like you are. I need to hear it. It's not just a series about what you're supposed to do. It's a series about what you need. And you need godly leadership. You not only may need to walk in some leadership, Holy Spirit influenced and maybe even Holy Spirit gifted leadership, but you also need to be on the receiving end of some leadership. Did you know that I'm led, peer-led, by Scott and Brad? That's the beauty of a plurally-led church. That's what scares me to death about the notion of one pastor that's making all the decisions, that has no one else in his life that can say, hey, dude, I want to hold you accountable on something. I got two of those guys standing right next to me. I want to hold you accountable on how you speak to God's people. I want to hold you accountable on how you speak to your wife. I'm on the receiving end of leadership as well. There's no one in here that's exempt. And the reason is because I need it. It's a series about things that we need to be and do. And it's always also a series of things that we need to need. <laughs> so let me share this passage with you and then we'll distribute these all ones. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And you can, under, you can make sense of what an unworthy manner would be by what he says next. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The unworthy manner is eating it unexamined. Ah, it's just a snack. I get it every week. <laughs> kind of ties me over for my real lunch. <laughs> That's not what this is. There should be some weight, some gravity to this. Wait a second. I'm eating something that he told me to eat that also is a proclamation of his death until he returns. This is a profound meal, and I should not take it unexamined because then I would be taking it in an unworthy manner. So the examination this morning is, what's my gifting? At least it should be, Lord, show me my gifting. Please, by your grace and your mercy, I want to know what my gifting is so I can walk in it, so I can be part of edifying and building up the body. I don't want to be at this perpetual terminal sponge that just absorbs everyone, everyone else's ministry. 
Churches are full of them. I mean, seriously, you know what I'm talking about? Churches are full of them. A few people hustling around, working in their gifting, and everybody else spectating. This church isn't like that. But some of you still might need to hear those words and do that self-examination. Am I just a terminal sponge? What gifting am I expressing that's building up the local body? That's an important question. Don't eat this meal unexamined. Let a person examine himself and then and eat, examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So pass on the meal if you have no convictions about identifying and walking in your gifting. I don't know that this is going to happen or not. But what happened in this case, he says next, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. <laughs> that's a pretty serious consequence. And you're like, yeah, man, I take this thing every week, but I, I hadn't listened to him for the last 15 minutes. So I don't even know what he's talking about. Don't take the supper if you're not going to have any effort, no burden to identify your gifting and walk in it for the advancement, the edification, the building up of the bride. But if you do, Man, take and eat. Run to it. 